Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to have to study your word and to look through it. We ask you to guide and lead, teach us what you would want us to see, and we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Kings chapter 6. We just finished with the healing of Nahum and the disobedience of Gehazi when he tried to take things and the fact that Gehazi got leprosy on him and his family for uh, after that happened. So starting at verse 1. And the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, Behold now the place where we dwell with, the, with you is too straight for us. Let us go, we pray you, unto Jordan and take thence every man a beam and let us make a place there where we may dwell. And he answered, Go you. And one answered, Be content, I pray you, and go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them, and when they had come to the Jordan, they cut down wood. And as one of them was felling a beam, the axe head fell into the water, and he cried and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. And the man of God said, Where fell it? And he showed him the place, and he cut down a stick and cast it in thither, and the iron did swim. Therefore he said, Take it unto, up to you. And he, he put it out his hand, and he took it. So this is kind of an interesting story in, in many ways, and we're going to break it down for what it says, and then I'm going to break it down for what I saw as symbolism in it as well. Because uh, I was impressed many years ago with the symbolism in this story. Um, starts out with the sons of the prophets. Remember, these are the guys that basically are in school. They're in the school learning to handle the Bible, learning to speak for God. And they said, behold now, the place where we dwell for us is too straight for us, or too small and too strict is, is other meanings for that word. So in other words, they had more people than they could put up in their house. Um, and so they come up to him and said, Let us go, we pray you, into Jordan, and take from thence every man a beam, and let us make a place there where we may dwell. And he answered, Go. So in other words, they're saying, We're getting too, we're getting too many people. The place is getting too small. We need, we need to create a new, a new place. And he says, Go ahead, go do it. And one of them begs him, Be content, you know, or be willing to come with us. And he said, I will. So this is kind of an interesting story. You know, these people are just saying, we need, we need a new house. We want to go down to the Jordan to get the wood for the house and build a, build a house in that area. And they went down to the Jordan River and they started cutting wood. And as one was felling the beam, the axe head, which is it, in the Hebrew it says iron axe head. So this isn't just stone. This is an iron axe head, which in that day and age was extremely expensive to have anything iron was a big deal to have an iron plow, to have an iron iron sword, to have iron, iron iron anything was a big deal at this time. And this iron axe head fell into the water. And he gets all upset because it was a borrowed, borrowed axe. Uh, it would be kind of like us borrowing a very, very expensive car and then losing it, and losing it or doing damage to it. You know, drive it into the lake, drive it, you know. Uh, so this is a big deal. This is, this is a big expense that they can't afford to make right. Uh, because in the law, if you, if you, even if you lost something, you had to at least give back equal the value, and the, and the law really stated that you had to give four times more. So they, they're going to owe him five axe heads <laughs> if you really got, uh, got after him about it. One they can't afford... <laughs> Five, they definitely can't afford. So this is a really big deal. He says, it is borrowed. Uh, 
And it really goes on because the laws of, of Israel basically did very clearly state you know, that you're responsible. If you borrowed something and something happened to you, you were responsible for Um, even at that, at the very least, they had to replace this one. That's why I'm saying he's on a borderline on whether he has to replace more. And if the guy made a big deal out of it, uh, he'd have to pay, they'd have to pay back more. Uh, hopefully, it was a good servant of God, and he says, okay, just replace my axe head. <laughs> um, so, but he says it's borrowed. And Elisha says something that's very interesting. He said, where did it fall? And they showed him where it fell, and it says he cut a piece of wood out and threw it in the, threw it in the river. And it says the axe head did swim, and it literally means floated. That axe head just floated up from the bottom of the, bottom of the river's water to the surface, and he said, pick it up. And that's metal. That's a metal. Metal doesn't float. This is a miracle. This is a big deal. Um, most people take this as a, just a simple picture of being responsible when you borrow something. And this is literally what it is, you know, to be responsible when you borrow something. But I want to look at some of the symbolism in this. Iron represents man, mankind in the scriptures. So iron in various pictures will represent man. The river Jordan represents death in many, in many, many spots. All right. So we have here First off, they're complaining that basically the church is too restrictive and too tight for them and too, too small because they're going to you know, our dwelling place, our, our church, our, our habitation is too small. And they go down, and in the process, man dies in the river, which is the state of man without Christ. He cuts the wood, and if you remember back when we talked about the, the Mira. In Mira, when, they, when the, the water was bitter, what did Moses do there? He cut wood, threw it in the water, and the waters became sweet. So the, the wood represents cross, cross in this situation. And when the cross comes into a death situation, we are raised, we are raised up above, the, above death. So this is a spiritual side of this. It's not the main thing, but it is a spiritual application to this. We're seeing the death. Man, man dies, and the cross brings us back to, to a life. And Elisha, as the man of God, is the one that institutes bringing the cross into the, into the picture. So the wood means the cross, you say? The, the cross. He threw the cross into death, and it, and it, and it brought in resurrection. Uh, same thing, like I said, when we see the, the, water, the bitter waters and after they crossed the Red Sea, Moses put a put wood, a stick of wood into the water and it became pure. So, and, and fresh and sweet from bitter to sweet just by putting a piece of wood into the, into the water, which it wasn't the wood that did it, <laughs> did the miracle. Uh, wasn't, it wasn't sticking the wood in the river that made the, made the axe float. It was the miracle of God and a picture, a picture, I'm going to say, of the cross being put into our situation. And for us as, as Christians, when, when, the cross comes into our rough times of life, we can live out in victory because it puts our flesh to death and we get to live in victory. And we see many places where this wood has been added to, to something and to bring life out of, out of death. And it's just another picture of life coming out of death when the cross is put into, into place. Which for the world sounds so strange. They go, how can, how can something 
you know, like that, just bring, you know, an instrument of death, bring life. Because it brings the spirit. It brings the spirit and then resurrection follows the crucifixion. And that is, and even in our day-to-day walk, it does the same thing. When I want victory in my life, I surrender my life to be killed by God so that he can then be exalted and bring life out of, out of a situation of death. And so, like I said, the main and primary thing is the idea of taking care of borrowed things, and we can carry that to the point of our life as a borrowed, a borrowed item from God. God owns everything, and our life is part of that borrowed, and we need to return it back to him. There's all kinds of ways that this all turns back in around to being a picture um, of, of, of how God works. And if Elisha hadn't come, the miracle most likely wouldn't happen because none of these students of his would have thought about throwing a piece of wood into the river and having the axe head float. And I'm not even sure that Elisha knew what was, that the axe head was going to float. He was just listening to God. And it's kind of funny to listen to God because God so often tells us to do things that make no sense. I'm sure he just didn't throw a piece of wood in there on his own. Yeah. You know, uh, I think I'll just throw a piece of wood in there and see what happens. I don't think that was what he was doing. I don't know that he expected the wood, the axe head to float. Oftentimes we go in and we just obey God and do something and get amazed at what God does in the process. At least I am. I do something. I'm going, God, it makes no sense to do this. It makes no sense to say this. It makes no sense to go here. And the next thing you know, God is doing something miraculous by your obedience to something that doesn't make sense. Uh, God's ways are not our ways, and throwing a stick of wood in the in the in the river was not going to be. <laughs> well, maybe, well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I think that Elisha was told. God said, "Go throw go throw this piece of wood in the wood in the in the river," and I'm pretty sure that Elisha did just like we did. All right, God, uh, why is throwing a piece of wood going to do this? But I, I've learned to listen to you, so I'm just going to throw this piece of wood in the in the in the river. And then they watch the axe head float. And if you've ever put in, you know, all you got to do is put a coin in water. It doesn't float. And it's a lot lighter than an axe head. And God doesn't do things twice the same way. Uh, wouldn't that be amazing? Just lose something in the river, just throw, throw, your, throw a stick in there and have it float. God doesn't usually do things the same way twice. He has new ways to do things all the time. Uh, but that's just something I wanted to bring out. Uh, this is a spiritual lesson within the lesson of how to l- deal with borrowed items, the responsibility of borrowed items, but God's redemption. God brings his redemption into situations, and his redemption always comes through the cross because he cannot redeem without, without the death, death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So... We, we have that little, little story there. Starting at verse 18, we end up with an interesting event that has a lot to read. Verse 8, And the king of Syria warred against Israel and took counsel with his servants, saying, In such and such place I shall, shall be my camp. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you pass not the place, for, the, for there the Syrians have come down. 
And the king of Israel sent to the place which the man of God told him and warned him and saved himself there, not once nor twice. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled for this thing, and he called his servants and said unto them, Will none of you show me which of you is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, but king, O king, but Elisha the prophet that is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedchamber. And he said, Go and spy there where he is, that I may send and fetch him. And it was told to him, Behold, he is in Dotham. All right, this is an interesting, interesting picture. Uh, Assyria is an enemy of Israel. And they're at, they're at war. And the king of Assyria, every time he starts to say, we're going to move such and such place, we're going to, we're going to go camp, we're going to go set a trap for the king of Israel at such and such place, you know, some pass or something, God tells Elisha. And Elisha tells the king, <laughs> don't go this place because the king of Syria is setting a trap. Uh, and it says that after he does it, the, the king sent spies basically to say, was there, was there an enemy here? He's trying to test, is Elisha telling me the truth? And he finds out that, yes, these people there. And then it says this very clear, this interesting thing. It didn't happen one time, nor twice. It happened more than two times. It, we don't know if it stopped it three times or if this is just kind of an idiom saying, every time that the king set a trap, God told, God told Elisha. But you can picture this. The king of Assyria is getting a little bit upset. Every time he sets a trap for the king of Israel, nobody shows up. Yeah, he sets up a, a trap at this pass, and the king goes, goes another pass and, and, and goes through the mountain or doesn't go anywhere near it. Um, and his accusation to the people is quite interesting. He goes, his heart, the inner part of his being, was sore troubled. Now, the word here literally is he was enraged. <laughs> he wasn't just upset. He was hot under the collar ready to lop some heads off. Who, who, who's the spy is what he's trying to figure out. And, and that's his question. Will any of you tell me who is for the king of Israel? Who is it that's passing this information to the king? I keep going where he needs to go and he doesn't show up. Uh, uh, and I keep showing up and he doesn't, he doesn't come. Uh, all of his traps are getting set up, uh, are, are not working and one of them in verse 12 says, and one of his servants says, none, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet that is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedchamber. Now, I don't know if any of you have the same thought that I have when I read that, but who told this servant that Elisha was the one telling the king? Uh, so we don't know. Was he, did he know about Elisha's reputation? And he's just trying to, soothe down the king before he takes somebody's head off? Uh, were there spies in the Israelite, uh, Israelite's palace? Most likely. So maybe, maybe he had a spy come to him and tell him, you know, Elisha's, Elisha's speaking everything that the king is doing. Uh, we don't know. Uh, was this just a shrewd guess from the servant to try to protect other people's lives? You know, maybe the servant had been with Nahum, Naaman when he had gone in, gone in and met Elisha and knew the power of God. We don't know. All we know is this man correctly identifies what's happening. All right? And 
it could be that this is a follower of, of God. And God told him, and he's acting in the role of a prophet. We don't really know what happened. There's not enough there to know how this guy all of a sudden just walked up to the king of Assyria and said, uh, it's, it's Elisha. <laughs> Elisha's doing this. Um, I looked up several commentaries and they all said we have no idea. So, which is what I was looking at. I was hoping that somebody had some tradition somewhere that they knew what had happened, you know, what was going on. Uh, no, all of them said nobody knows. So I'm just going to throw out some of their ideas, some of what I thought, you know. I kind of leaned to the idea that either one of two things, he just had a shrewd guess that it was Elisha and he was trying to calm down the king or there were spies in the court of Israel that reported what was going on. Could be either way. I mean, it could be a shrewd guess. God could have even spoken to him. Who, you know, he, like I said, he might have been a follower of God and God just said, tell him that Elisha, you know, say that Elisha did it. Uh, Elisha's telling him. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. All we know is now the king has a new target to go after. He's no longer trying to go, you know, trap the, the king of Israel. He says, now go and, go and spy out where he is that I may fetch him. And that means by force. <laughs> he, he's not just going to capture. He's, he's planning to force Elisha to come in. Now, remember what happened to the last guys that tried to arrest, arrest the man of God? Uh, on the mountaintop, and the three of them, uh, two, the first two had fire fall down on them. This is not a really wise move, but we're going to go back to what I've said several times. God does not do the same thing twice. So he's got a new, new idea for this, for this set of army coming in. He's not going to burn them up from heaven. Uh, and he says, go find him, and they found him in Dotham. Uh, if you want to know where Dotham is on the map, it's a... It is approximately 12 miles uh, north of Samaria, the, the capital. So it's, it's toward uh, Syria and it's right above Samaria. So he is, in, he is in Dotham. It's a small small city, small town. About 12 miles away from, from Syria is where, where Elisha is. Now, here we have one of the funniest stories in the Bible, one of the funnier stories. Verse 14, Therefore sent he there horses and chariots and a great host, and they came by night and compassed the city about. And when the servant of the man of God was raised early in the morning and gone forth, behold, a host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And the servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? And he answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with him. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray you, open the eyes of him that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire around about Elisha. All right. This is one of the first parts of this story. I, I, I love this. The king of Assyria sends Calvary what we would say armor and chariots, and a host of an army, which means he sent a lot of people. He's going to go take one man out of Israel. <laughs> and he sends an entire army to go, to go uh, capture one man. Uh, kind of a little lopsided. He, he also may know the reputation of Elisha and Elijah, uh, how they have killed many people. Uh, and he's trying to try to make sure he has plenty. But they get to Dotham, 
and they circle the city. They put, put the city to siege. And all they're doing is asking, they're going to ask for Elisha. So they've, they've put a ring around the city so that he can't get away, nobody can get out. And this is how you captured cities back then. You just circled them until they starved to death, or starved, starved into surrender anyway. I don't know that he was going to plan on trying to wait that long. He's basically going to send emissaries in and say, just send, me, just send Elisha out here and, I'll, and we'll let you go. We just want Elisha. So they circle it. Elisha's servant gets up probably to go get some water. You know, it's early in the morning. He has to go get water. And what does he see? He sees an army circling the city. And I don't know, I, don't, I didn't study how big Dotham is. It's by the dot on there. It's not one of the bigger cities of the, of the area. The army is surrounding it. The servant is panicked. How easy is it when we walk by the flesh and by sight to get panicked when something happens to us? It's an amazing thing to, you know, when we look at something and we go, wow, this problem is too big. When we look at the battle between David and Goliath, what did Saul and his army say when they looked at Goliath? This problem is too big. We can't, we can't get over this problem. Many times in our flesh, we look at a problem and say, this problem's too big. Elisha looks at the problem and says, my God is bigger than this problem. <laughs> and he knew that God had everything under control. And his answer was a simple one. God opened the servant's eyes. Let him see. And in this particular case, the servant got to see that God surrounded the enemy. <laughs> so you had a little town in the center. You had the enemy surrounding the town, and then God surrounded the enemy. Remember, the enemy had a great host. God's army was bigger. Now, did it take that many angels to, to defeat that army? Absolutely not. Who was, that, who was that host of the angels all for? That servant. That servant that needed to see that God was bigger than their problem. This is our challenge. Whenever we face a problem in life, to ask God to open our eyes to see how he is going to fix our problem. And this is something, I, I suffer the same problems when I look at some, same, same problem when I look at things, I'm going... God, I just don't see how you're going to manage to get me out and get, that, get me through this one. All right? And my question will be, God, I need your help. This is your problem. This is, this is your issue, God. I'm putting it in your hands. I've had one just like that recently where I just said, God, it's in your hands. Because I don't see any way out of the problem. God has a way out of the problem. And it just happens that I've been reading this story as, and as I'm studying and looking at my problem that God's put, allowed to come in my way. Uh, and it's like, okay, God, where is your army surrounding the army that I see or the problem that I see? God always has an answer. God is bigger than anything that we need. He has more resources than, than we will ever need. He has more power than we will ever need. And this is the beauty of serving God. God is bigger than any problem that we have. When Jesus was talking to Pilate, he told Pilate that he could call 12, uh, 10 legions of angels. The whole entire Roman army was 12 legions <laughs> at that time. So basically, uh, he was telling Pilate, I can, call more, I can call more angels than you have men here because you'd have to have the entire Roman, <laughs> Roman army here to have less people. 
And Jesus could have just as well said, I can call 20 legions or 30 legions of angels because he gets plenty of angels. And he's just basically saying the point, you don't have the power. The enemy does not have power over us as Christians. We may look at it, we may think he does, we may even give him power over us with our fear and our, and our concerns, but he has no power over us when we are in Christ. Because I love the idea when Christ comes in and lives in us and Satan knocks on the door, who should be answering the door? I'm sending Jesus to answer the door. Uh, Jesus is for you. <laughs> and he opens the door and Satan goes, no, you're not the one I wanted to talk to and disappears. Too many times we try to answer that door and we get beat up. If we try to solve our own problems by the ways of the flesh, we will lose, we will panic, and have bad times. This servant gets to see that there's, an enemy, there's a stronger army around him. Elisha had no concern. It's like, uh, God's got this. Where did Elisha get this much faith? I don't know. You know. He had many things happen to him, but he had faith, and he just, he's going, okay, the enemy's, the enemy's circled this, circled us, we've got, God's got him taken care of. Uh, and very interesting, it says, don't fear. This is the scripture that we have so often. In the Bible, over 300 times it says, fear not. And in most of those cases, it is something that is literally worth fearing. Jesus told the disciples, fear not when their boat is sinking. And these guys are sailors. They know their boat is sinking. That would be like telling a pilot whose plane is crashing, don't be afraid. All right? And the pilot's going, uh, uh, you don't understand, God. This plane is going down. Uh, and he goes, don't worry about it. I've, I've got this under control. Uh, you know, so... In this case, it's Elisha telling him, fear not. God is, God is in control. God has this. God, open the servant's eyes so he can see what you have in store. And he looked up and he looked and the, on the mountains all around the city and all around the enemy was another army. <laughs> Which you got to figure, if you understand just the mathematics of that, you know, the army, the army of the Assyrians circle it. To encircle that army on a larger circle takes a lot, more peop- a lot more people to circle that army. So we're talking about a lot of angels show up to protect. And we know later on when, in the battle that it takes one angel, one, one angel killed 187,000 people. This large grouping of angels was not because it needed that many angels to be victorious. It was needed that many angels so that the servant would see that God was mightier than their enemy. God will show us what we need to see. God will do what we need to do. All through, all through the Bible, we see these examples. All through history, and we hear missionaries tell stories about God delivering them. People seeing more than what, what, they, what they saw. In the, five, the Seven Day War of Israel, there, there's all kinds of stories of the enemy surrendering to five or six men because what they saw was not five or six men. They saw an entire army behind the five or six men. And they just, rather than fight the entire army, surrendered. We saw 
They saw planes fall out of the sky. They saw missiles and bombs just fall out of the sky and not, not explode. God defended his people in mighty ways. Missionaries have gone through wilderness areas and have people ask them, where did you find the army that protected you? You know, we, they made it through with, no, with nobody attacking them and they were going, wow, we don't know how that happened. And they would come and see them later on and go, how did you hire that army that protected you? And they're going, what army are you talking about? God provides for his people. If we need safety, he'll provide safety. If we need finances, he'll provide finances. If, he, if we need people to help do work, he'll provide that. We never know what he's going to do, how he's going to do it. Now, if we're lazy and not doing our part, he's going to say, too bad. But in this case, the enemy surrounded the city, and Elisha said, not a big deal. God has a plan. I love this plan. It's, it, was so, it is so funny. Uh, the young man saw this in verse 18. And then they came down to him, and Elisha prayed unto the Lord and said, Smite the people, I pray you, with blindness. And he smote them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. And Elisha said unto them, This is not the way, neither is this the, this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. And it came to pass when they were coming to Samaria that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. And the king of Israel said unto Elisha when he saw them, My father, shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? And he answered, You shall not smite them. Would you smite those whom you have taken captive with your sword and, and with your bow? Set bread and water before them and let that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And he prepared a great provision for them and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. So the bands of Syria came no more into the land of Israel. I, I love this one. This is, this is one of the more, one of the more the interesting and funny stories. Elisha goes out and meets them. They're here to arrest him. And before he goes out, he goes, God, smite them blind. An entire army struck blind. Can you imagine the panic in that, in that army? Imagine if you got struck blind and you're not, a, not getting ready to go to war. You're, 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 you're guarding, you've got your sword out, you're ready to just go to battle, and all of a sudden you can't see a thing. You are completely blind. And the entire army, the entire army that circled this city now is blind. And Elisha goes out and says... You aren't, you, aren't, you aren't in the right road. You aren't, you aren't even at the right place. <laughs> All right. Um, he goes, you're, you're not in, this is not the way, this is not the city. You, you got lost in the night trying to surround the city. You've surrounded the wrong city. All right. Uh, now, again, they don't have GPS systems. They don't have map, you know, great maps. So as far as they're concerned, they might be in the wrong place. And it says... And he says, follow me and I will bring you to where you need to go. I will take you to the person that you're seeking. The person they're seeking is talking to them. And he goes, come and I'll take you where you need to go. We don't know how many people followed in this, in this group of people. I'm going to probably say several thousand, tens of thousands, to circle an entire, even a small town. You know, figure, even a town the size of chloride, how many people would it take to, to surround the entire one mile square town. Uh, it, it would not be a small amount of money, uh, small amount of money, small amount of 
of manpower to even set, you know, set, uh, encircle a town this size. So we're talking several thousand people. And he's going, okay, uh, you, guys haven't, you guys haven't found the right place. Let me, I will take you to the city that you're supposed to go to. And you got to picture this. Let's say there's 10,000 men. I don't know. Let's say there's 10,000 men in this army being led by Elisha on a 12-mile hike. And they're blind. You know, I can almost picture it. They're all having their hand on the shoulder of the guy in front of them so they don't, so they don't get lost and don't get separated. He's marching all these men on a 12-mile march. That would take a long time. No, 12 miles, uh, even at a normal speed in that day, probably took him about three or four hours. Yeah, it probably took longer being blind because you're, you're not going to trust every step. You're going you're to shuffle along. So it probably took most of the day. And he walks them 12 miles to get to Samaria. This to me is a comical picture. You know, I, like I say, I can picture them all hand on the guy's shoulder. We don't know where we're going, but this... But you think about this. Why would they listen to somebody in Israel telling them they're in the wrong place and we'll take you where you need to go? Yeah. It's a miracle that they followed him. And it could be because they're just so, you know, amazed they're blind. And they just randomly have a man come up to him and say, you're at the wrong place, let me take you where you're going. Nobody's told him who they're looking for or where they're supposed to be. And he goes, you're at the wrong city, you're, and I'll take you to the, to the man you're looking for. And they follow him. A stranger, a stranger in an enemy land. They're not in, they're not in Syria. They're in Israel and they're trusting a stranger that walks up to him and says you're in the wrong place now what is the picture on here probably the power of God he's gone to the captain and the captain the power of God is so forceful with him that he believes the believes the word and believes what's being said because I can't imagine an, ar an army commander general you know saying yeah, we'll just follow this stranger in an enemy land and take, so he can take us wherever, wherever he wants to take us. And especially when I'm pretty sure I ended up where I was supposed to be in the first place. Now he's telling me I'm in the wrong place. How did he know where I'm supposed to be? And how did he know who I'm looking for? But none of those questions were asked. They're in an enemy territory and somebody says, follow me, you're at the wrong place, follow me. And they followed him. And he walks them right into Samaria. Uh, the, the, capital, the capital of Samaria. Through the, big, through the major gates, into the center of the city, walks them into that. I can almost picture the king looking. First off, he's watching this army, fall, you know, an army marching toward him. And then he's looking at them, what's wrong with this army? You know, they're not marching, they're shuffling along. You know, they're not, they're not, they're not coming in aggressively. Probably sent spies out to find out what's going on, you know, runners out to find out. Uh, I want to know, tell me about this group coming in. Uh, hey, King, Elisha's leading the entire army of Syria back here. They appear to be blind. Let's, he lets them walk all the way into the center of town. Probably has engaged his army to surround them when they get, up, you know, when they get in. They march him right into the center of Samaria. And then Elisha says, open their eyes. All of a sudden, they have sight. They've been blinded all morning long. 
following some crazy guy in the middle of Israel to some place that they don't know where they're going, and come to, they might even think they're dreaming. Who knows why they're following? We don't know. But they come to their senses and get their sight and find out that they're in the middle of the capital city. And I imagine probably have an army surrounding them. And so instead of them having the city surrounded, they are now surrounded. (laughs) And we have this in verse 21. The king of Israel gets all excited and he when he sees him and says, my father or my lord, my, 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 my master, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? You know, I have the army of Samaria at my disposal. There's a bloodthirstiness in this poor king. You know, he's ready to just kill innocent, defenseless men. These men are at their mercy. They're not, they're not going to put up a... They just got done with a 12-mile hike. Just totally dis... Uh, uh, disembodied, uh, dis, you know, discombobulated. They don't know where they're at. All they know, they're in the center of a large city with large stone buildings, which is not where they started and not where they're supposed to be. And they look around, and they're surrounded by an enemy. And the king is saying, shall I kill them? And Elisha says, you shall not smite them. Would you kill your captives? People who've surrendered, would you kill them? You know, these guys have surrendered, you know, as far as they're concerned. Now, if they wanted to put up a fight, he could, but these guys are not ready to fight. Nobody after a 12-mile march is ready to, ready to fight. And as was said, they, they can't see where they're going. This is not a nice, easy march, even though they kept on the road and all, and all of that. Uh, roads back then were not as smooth as our roads. If he kept them on the highway, he'd be better off. They would at least have a smooth road to walk on. But they've marched 12 miles. They're not in any shape to fight. They're disoriented because now all of a sudden they see and they're, and they're really kind of, you know, they were going to go to some small town to, to arrest, to, to, to capture Elisha. Now they're in the big city. And think about this. If somebody marched us from here to even Kingman and all of a sudden, you know, we opened our eyes and, and saw a city around us, we're going to have a problem. And this is a walled city that they marched them to. This is, this is a monstrous city. This would, this would almost be like showing up in downtown Phoenix. <laughs> you know, and it's like, how did I get here? What's going on? Uh, I thought maybe I was dreaming when I was blind and being marched out here. And now I am in a very bad situation. And I think it's so funny because Elisha tells them, you can't kill them, feed them. And he says, give them bread and water, all right, uh, that they may eat, and then let them go. And it says, he prepared a great provision, and the word here literally is feast or banquet. The king of Israel gave them a huge feast, not just bread and water the way he was told. So in this case, he's going beyond, a rarer time when he's gone beyond what the man of God said. He produces a feast for these individuals, and it says, after they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away back to, Samaria, back to Syria, where the king of Syria was so impressed at what happened, or so fearful at what happened, I'm not sure which it was. First, he's got the man of God telling him all of his plans. Now his army is captured, should be dead. They give him a big feast, and they go back, back to, the, back to Damascus. Uh, 
I can't even imagine what the king was thinking with all this. He's probably thinking, I would not have spared the army if they'd come to my, my city. I'm lucky to have an army anymore. Uh, what, kind of, what kind of God am I fighting against would be his other thing. I've got a God that struck my entire army blind. These are going back to the same things that were thought about when Israel left Egypt. All through Israel's history, the, the stories about Egypt have always been there. After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, what did Rahab tell the, the spies? We know that God is on your side and that he did mighty things to get you here. Then God did mighty things all through that period of time that people remembered. All through here, we see people being remembering that the God of Israel is powerful. So Damascus is probably, the king of Damascus, there in Damascus is probably saying, well, my people could have been killed directly. This God is the one that did miracles for Egypt. He's the one that did miracles when he destroyed the Canaanites, Pesites, Hittites, Gergesites, and all those other ites. He's going, God, God, their God took them out. He's given, he's given victory. He struck my people blind. You know, uh, what else could, God, could that God have done? So he's probably going, I'm not ready to attack Israel anymore. Uh, I'm just going to leave them alone. Because he's now knowing that he's not fighting flesh and blood. He's fighting God. And this is the thing we always have to remember in our battles. The battle's not ours. When we are in any kind of battle, spiritual, physical, uh, an attack from Satan, the battle is not ours. It belongs to God. Now, that doesn't mean we sit back passively and say, okay, God, I, I need money. I'm just going to sit here on my butt, wait for you to drop money on my head. We go do what we can, but we say, God, it is yours. When I was walking by, by faith before I got the job out of the prison, I, told, I, made a, I made a deal with God. I go, God, as long as you pay my bills every month, I won't go, I won't go out and get a job out as a manager or something, because that's what I was looking at, becoming a restaurant manager, which meant that I wouldn't have been able to to uh, be a pastor, because I would know that I would have had a phone call every Sunday morning, every Wednesday night, where help was needed. And you know what? For the period of four years, God met my needs all the time. I would get checks in the mail. I would a job would pop up for me to do on the computer world or or laborer, and I'd go do the work, and it would be I'd get paid just enough to pay the bills. And it was a wonderful experience. But God will always do what we need to, to get us through a problem. The battle is the Lord's. When God met Eli uh, Joshua in the wilderness, Joshua came up to him ready to fight the angel of the Lord, it said, and he said, whose side are you on? He says, I'm not on any side. I'm, I'm on God's side. And he told Joshua, bow down. You know, you're on, you're on holy ground. And he bowed down and he said, be courageous and of good courage and said, I've got a task for you, and he set him on that task. You know, God meets needs. And whenever you're tempted to believe that God no longer does the miraculous, open your eyes wider. He's still doing miraculous things all the time. All the time around us, he is doing miracles. All we need to do is have our eyes open just as the servant's eyes needed to be opened. Sometimes God may not show us what he's doing. He just provides. And we look and go, wow. And it's fun to look back over your life at various points in your life and see how God has provided that you never even realized at the time you were going through it. 
you know, and be able to say, God, you did so much. Look at how you provided. Look at what you have done for me. And God loves us so much, he wants to pour out God's blessings on us. Now, he will not pour out blessings if we're going to think somehow I did it. If he's not going to get the glory, he's not going to pour out the blessings. But you know, when we're just quiet before God and let him do what he's going to do and give him the thanks and, and, and say, God, thank you for what you've done, God will step in. He will tear down the walls of Jericho. He will rebuild the temple. He will destroy the enemy that surrounds you. He will capture the enemy that surrounds you. He will tame the enemy that surrounds you. Whatever it takes, he will do. If we just learn to trust him. God is waiting to heal people. He is waiting to deliver people. He is waiting to show his strength. God likes to show off. Yeah, and it's an amazing thing to watch him when he just, when he just gets and says, I'm going to do this. I, and I, I think God loves to show off. Sometimes when you look at the sunrise or the sunsets and say, God, you're just showing off now, aren't you? You know, the, the beautiful sun, sunsets. I love some of the sunsets around Arizona. I've, I've seen some beautiful sunrises and sunsets out on the islands and over the, over the water, but some of the most beautiful sunrise, uh, sunsets I've ever seen are here in, in Arizona with, when the dust collects the, the light and reflects it and everything, everything seems to turn to gold and the whole air t- turns to gold. And then you've got the colors on top of that. It's a beautiful thing to see God showing off and saying, this is what I've got. And God's showing off when we're looking at it and saying, God, there is no way that I can get out of this problem. And then you just wait and God steps in. And God does what God will do. And I love it when God steps in. He steps in in this situation, brings the army 12 miles safely, and sends them back home. And there's no more, no more battle between Syria and Israel for a while. Nothing, nothing ever lasts forever. <laughs> and this peace is not going to last forever. We're going to go after this. We're going to see the, the, the peace get broken again. But... Elisha said, God strike them blind. He just said, strike them blind, and they went blind. This is the power of God. It's very interesting to watch how God does this. And this has happened in many different stories. If you read the story of the hiding place, Corey and her sister Betsy are being processed, where they have to totally strip out before the soldiers to walk through, and they carry a Bible through through the, the uh, line, and their prayer was, God, you've healed, you know, I think Betsy was, you've healed the blind man's sight, make these guys temporarily blind to the Bible. And they walked through with the Bible, and the soldiers never saw it. You know, there's many stories where people have said, God, make these, not completely blind, you know, and most of the stories are not completely blind, but God, I have this, and I don't want them to see it. People smuggling Bibles into communist countries and said, God, I've got this gate, this crossing. Would you make them not see, not see the Bibles? And they act like they never saw the Bibles or never did see them. You know, if God can make people get sight, he can take away sight. And he can make sight very specific, that they can't see certain things. Uh, he can open up their sight or even our sight to see spiritual things. You know, there are people that 
have, have said that they see demons and angels all over the place. I don't, uh, and I'm not looking for them, and I don't really want to see them. But I do know people that, that say they have. Uh, now, I don't know why you want to see a demon, but they say they've seen demons, and that's fine, let, let, let it be. I'm not going to argue with them. Uh, it could be possible that God has opened up the spirit world to them, and they see the spirit, the spirit world. Uh, this servant of Elisha saw the spirit world. Now, in his case, he saw good angels. <laughs> but how many times in the scriptures has God said an angel showed up? Now, did the angel take human form, or did people see the spirit world? I will, I will say it's the same. It doesn't matter which way it was. All right? Have you ever heard God's voice audibly? I've only had one time when I think I heard God's voice audible in my entire life. And it was just an impression of that audible, but it was very clear what I heard. So am I hearing in the spirit realm, or did God literally in the physical realm speak? Does it really matter how he does it? If he shows his power and he shows his spirit, does it matter whether he allowed me to see and hear something other than what I, what I normally would see or hear, or if he actually became flesh and blood and did it? Either way, the result is the same way. God is still communicated. And in this case, in, the, in Elisha's servant, he said, open his eyes that he may see. So in his case, we know his eyes were open to see the spiritual world. This is very important. God is still doing miracles. He still heals. He still will deliver people from demons. He still will do all these things if we just have the faith that he is going to work. I haven't seen, heard too many people in America have, be participating in resurrections, but many missionaries in, in various countries have had opportunities to bring resurrections to be able to glorify God. How? I don't know. They had enough faith to say God raised this person from the dead and God did it. Why? Because sometimes it was the chief or something or the chief's family and it got them the, the road in to preach the gospel. Usually every time we see a resurrection, God is exalted out of it and something great happens. Uh, and we see it over and over again. Jesus resurrected several people. Uh, the you know, I was reading today in, in Luke, and it talked about the wedding per procession where the widow's only son had died, and Jesus was grieving, so he went up, he went up to, the, to the casket and prayed, and the man sat up and started talking. You know, he healed Eli uh, uh, Lazarus. You know, could, he have, could he have healed John the Baptist if he had wanted to? Sure, he could, have, he could have brought John the Baptist. I mean, anything that he wanted to do, he could have done. But every time he did it, it was to get glory for God. When God does the miraculous for us, we need to make sure we're looking and saying, God, thank you. Lifting him up and seeing how that miraculous is going to lift God up. Healings help build faith of the church. When somebody gets healed, especially miraculously, they come up for prayer and they get healed, it brings faith to the church. Because every time we see God work, it reinforces our desire that says, wow, God, you, you still are. You still are the miracle worker. You still are doing great things. And the more we see God work, the greater our faith should become if we're really looking at those activities and saying, wow, how good is God? 
I love the statement where people say God is good all the time God is good God is good all the time and all the time God is good is a response back but you know we need to really start understanding God is good all the time he always has a plan for us he has provision for us we just have to have enough faith to step out if we don't step out in faith God's not going to work. He's not going to. He's just not going to show up and do things without us asking. Elisha said, "God, blind this army," and they were blinded, and were able to be led into captivity. Which is also the way we are in most times with Satan. We are blinded and we are led into captivity. We we so easily follow Satan and his plans into captivity, in deeper captivity. So we need to always be praying, God, do not allow us to be blinded by, the, by, by Satan and his people and his enemy. Uh, because it is very important that we always seek after God. Keep your spiritual eyes open. And the way that's done is by praying, following him in faith, getting to know the word of God and how he's done things in the, in the past, and also looking at how he's done things for you. If we are followers of God, God has done miraculous things in our life. All we have to do is open our eyes and say, God, what is it that you've done? I have seen so many minor, what would be considered minor miracles by many, but you know what? Those minor miracles were just what I needed to get through a problem at the time that it happened. So you know what? It wasn't a minor miracle to me because it was just what I needed to get through whatever trouble I was in. This blindness was not really a minor miracle, but it wasn't, it wasn't, they were better off than what normally happened to them. They normally had fire fall down on them and die. So at least they get to go back home. But we look at this. Look around in your life and say, God, what is it that you've done in my life? What is it that you want to do? And we're going to see all of this stuff coming along as we go, go forward in here. The next story goes actually into chapter 7, so we're going to stop here and and uh, take up the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7 next week. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. Lord, help us to see what you would want us to see. Lord, show us your power. Help us to start opening our eyes to your power and seeing all the miracles and, and actions that you're doing around us all the time. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening, friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. 
You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.